Many thanks for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined today by the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Journal, Professor Catherine Otto from Seattle. Catherine, many thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for uh, asking me to talk. Uh, Catherine, the reason uh, I wanted to chat to you today was really about some uh, new guidelines that you've been involved with. Uh, this has been in collaboration with the British Medical Journal, and you published an editorial in Heart which explained the guidelines. Perhaps you could give us uh, an overview of the current situation with society guidelines and why you think there needs to be some change in how we both produce guidelines and also disseminate the information relating to guidelines. I mean, I think that's a great question. I think that you know the um, ACC and ESC guidelines um, particularly, for, for example, for valvular heart disease, have been you know, very influential in how we practice medicine and have really you know, created an atmosphere of evidence-based medicine and provide you know, really uh, practical clinical management for each patient. But over the years, the process for writing guidelines has become very uh, bureaucratic and cumbersome, and it takes a long time to revise them. So the ACC and the ESC valve guidelines are, are a few years old, and there's been a lot of new research in valvular heart disease, yet the guidelines can't respond to that in a very timely manner. It takes you know, over a year to even do a minimal update. And I think that that kind of lag time between new publication of practice changing evidence and guidelines to help clinicians and patients make decisions you know, is really no longer acceptable. And I think we need a new process to get guidelines to our patients and to clinicians more rapidly. Okay. And what kind of approaches have been used by others in this area in terms of modernizing the, the guideline approach? The project that I worked with was, a, was through a group called Magic Project, which is a group based out of Norway, also in collaboration with a group at McMaster's University that, that has the idea that we could do it in sort of a wiki process, just like we do Wikipedia or other fast things, that we get together a group of different types of experts and do a, very, a more rapid process of looking at a, very, a single question. So rather than trying to look at all the guidelines for valve disease, the question we targeted as a pilot project was the uh, issue of transcatheter aortic valve replacement for um, patients with lower risk severe aortic stenosis. So we know that you know, this, is the, this is the therapy for high and prohibitive risk patients now. But what about the, the patient who's at intermediate or even low risk? You know, should they, if they're 69 years old, should they have a surgical valve or should they have a transcatheter valve? And in April, we had the uh, partner data on that group of patients come out, and there's been several other studies. So we sit there as clinicians and we look at that, and there's at least three uh, randomized trials plus lots of observational data, but we don't have a really good way as a clinician to combine data from different studies to decide is this data strong enough that we should change our practice? You know, how should we change our practice? You know, which patients does it apply to? So the, the first step in this process was to say, here's a question. Here's the question we're going to identify. You know, here's the patient of interest. Here's the intervention we're interested in. And, and where do we go from there? How do we approach that problem? Okay. And the, the way that the guidelines were put together, as well as just focusing on a single clinical area, like, for example, aortic valve replacement surgery versus uh, TAVR. There is also a different methodology, is that right, in terms of the kind of people involved? It's not just clinicians and statisticians. There are others involved in the, 
in the uh, birthing of these guidelines, if you like. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's very different than our conventional professional societies. Professional societies have committees that have what I would call content experts that, re that uh, have a wide range of expertise. We have you know, imagers and interventionalists and surgeons and anesthesiologists. So different types of imaging experts and different, uh, different types of experts and, and people from different professional societies. But what the, what the Wikirex approach does is it takes content experts like me or you, and we add to that actual research methodology experts. And we add, so that's the second group. And so the research methodology experts, you know, right now, if I work on the ACC guidelines, I personally have to review the literature. I have to try to make evidence tables where I summarize what the literature says. And, and I and the others on the committee can discuss the data. But we're not really research methodology experts. And so we, we, we don't have the ability or the time or resources to do a formal meta-analysis or systematic review. So this independent group of research methodology experts, we presented that group, we, the, us content experts said, here's our question, and here's what we are gonna define as the important outcomes. These are the outcomes we want you to look at, and we want you to stratify it by age. And the research methodology experts then did that analysis. And that was just an amazing thing to me in terms of what they presented to me is so different than what I've had in any other guideline process. Yeah, I'm just looking uh, online at the, um, at the guideline that you produced, and I will put links in the show notes about the original guideline published in the British Medical Journal and then your editorial, uh, which has got a snapshot of the guideline. It's just beautifully clear in terms of the, the quality of the evidence with a starring system and uh, very graphical, lots of... Uh, Lots of dense information, but very easy, I would imagine, to explain to a patient, you know, explaining where the advantages of surgery versus TAVA might be uh, as the disease progresses and as the age of the patient changes. It's a, it's a really nice, very focused, I guess it's almost like a single um, piece of paper, really. You can get the whole clinical question summarized in one piece of paper. Yeah, I think what you just said there has two aspects of it. One is so as, as a content expert on the committee, after the research methodology experts had, had provided the data, they provided us these detailed tables with the 14 outcomes we had defined, and then they showed us for each of those outcomes, they showed us the relative risk of surgical versus transcatheter valve, but they also showed us the absolute risk and the strength of the evidence and we had those tables that were very, you know, very 14 outcomes, so it just fit on a couple pages. And we had those for our four pre-specified age groups. And it was just very clear to us on the committee in terms of making the recommendation to have the data in that format. That was amazing. And from that, so, we, so our committee then got back together. And the third group we involved at this point is, of course, patients. And these are patients who are educated, you know, high-level patients who have an understanding of the healthcare system and who also themselves had experienced valve disease, and they provided great input on what, it, what outcomes were important to them as patients. And then you kind of got to the next aspect is that when it's done, so then we, we make these recommendations, and then how do we present them? And then so another, the fourth group of people, besides content experts, research data experts, and patients, the fourth group is communication experts. So people who can take the recommendations and put them in what we call a multi-layered format, you know, online as well as in whatever other format you want, um, 
where it is accessible to clinicians, patients, researchers. So you can have it all on one page, and then you can click on that page if you want more details about a specific thing, and you can keep going deeper and deeper the more data you want in that layered format. Or if you're a patient, you can go and ask very practical questions about from the patient point of view. So it has that, that ability to put all the data in a way that's really easy to look at. Yeah, it's certainly very accessible. And in, in terms of the you, one of the disadvantages you mentioned of traditional guidelines where you attempt to cover the, the whole field, uh, for example, valvular heart disease, I guess the, the turnaround time and the way that you can incorporate new trial data is much faster. Uh, with the uh, magic Wikirec guidelines. Right. Like, so for the ACC uh, and ESC guidelines, I can't give you an update on what they're going to say about this because it's been, they haven't, they haven't published anything yet. And I'm on that committee and it's not done yet. It takes a really long time. Whereas this, our goal was to do three months from publication of the practice changing research to the publication of the guideline. It took us five months because it's our first one, but even so, that timeline is so much shorter. Um, and it gets it out there quicker uh, for everyone to see. That's fantastic. I hadn't realized it was quite so fast. And I guess now that you have the methodology in place, you would hope the next guideline that you work on is going to be even faster, maybe within that, that three-month window. Yeah, and kind of what I'm thinking of, uh, the way I'm kind of thinking of this as kind of a visual metaphor is if, if, um, if the current guidelines are sort of the landscape on which we're going to build, and it's sort of a rolling, hilly landscape where we have more data for some recommendations. We have stronger evidence, you know, higher levels of, of, of um, data to say this is the right thing to do, and others we kind of have valleys where we have less evidence. So if we have this landscape now for our current guidelines for really all aspects of cardiovascular disease, you could use the Wikirec process for each specific question, again, in response to new data to take one specific area and kind of build that area up to a higher level of evidence and stronger recommendations. And I also think the level of detail in these uh, recommendations is much greater than it will ever be in the guidelines from our professional organizations. They're not going to be able to provide the level of detail that this recommendation does. Yeah, just looking at it, I absolutely agree with what you just said. So what's the plan going forward, Catherine? Is this something that uh, you personally are taking forward or are you going to try to influence the ACC, ESC, AHA to, to, uh, to take on board? How, how are things standing at the moment? Well, I'm not really, really quite sure how it goes forward. You know, I was invited to join this group and I'm thrilled to have done so because I found it such a positive experience. Um, and I think it's a, a little interesting to see where should it go from here. I have, we have been in conversations with the American College of Cardiology. I have had some email discussions with the ESC, but haven't heard back from them. And an offer to say, is this a process that you could take and add to the process you already have to update uh, more rapidly between your major updates and then incorporate into the major updates each time? So that would be certainly one approach. Um, other um, ways that we get information like up-to-date might incorporate it. Um, our, our electronic medical record, perhaps this should be something that just shows up in it. But it's really, it's really actually independent of any professional group. So any group of interested individuals in theory can do this. If they, they, can, go to the, they can go to the website, it's a platform that's there. Um, I think the major limitation now is that we, we all did this as volunteers. There's not real funding for it. But, um, you know, I mean, I think it's a little like, you know, transportation, you know, taxi companies weren't very happy having Uber, but it happened anyway. So 
I'm hoping that we can, you know, get uh, some of the major professional societies interested in taking on this process or something similar. But I think if they don't, that uh, clinicians and researchers may decide to just move ahead themselves. And I think you may, as you say, there may well be a demand once uh, once patients with a, an interest and understanding of this uh, area, particularly the communication side of things, start to see these guidelines appearing. They're so simple uh, to look at and understand, but as you say, there's lots of deep information if you want to go deeper, but visually they're really interesting and uh, really makes it clear uh, just both the strength of evidence, as I say, and also the, you know, the pros and cons of each approach uh, for the focused clinical question. And, and for our listeners, maybe we should just describe that simple visual so they're not left with a mystery here at the end. The basic bottom line recommendation was that we recommended strongly transfemoral uh, a TAVR if, if for patients over age 85. Um, for patients under age 65, we strongly recommended surgical valve. And then for the two 10-year uh, age groups in between, it was a weak recommendation in either direction. And the reason why it changes is, of course, because you know, if you look at the data, the, the, the relative risks are different. But also the big issue here is going to be durability of trans, transcatheter valves, um, which we have good data out to maybe five years, but we don't have 10 or 15-year data. So, but, to, but to me as a clinician, that was a real eye-opener because like, so now I have an 85-year-old with severe AS, I can, even if they're low surgical risk, I feel fairly confident about saying you might as well go with a transfemoral approach rather than going to surgery. So that's a big, that's a big change. And it also helps me, I, I get a lot of patients in their you know, 50s and 60s who want to have a transfemoral because they've heard about it. Um, and I can say to them, well, here's the data, you know, and here's why I think you should still have a surgical valve. And I can show them that. And, you know, patients are allowed to have, uh, you know, obviously their preferences and values enter in, but at least I can show them why I'm making that recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I will put uh, links in the show notes of the podcast so listeners and readers can go and uh, check out the high resolution images and uh, really see exactly what we're talking about. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Catherine, for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast. And uh, thank you, all of you out there, for listening. Please join us again next time.